There are over 75 million monthly Tubi viewers. That's more people than there are influencers on the internet. Which means Tubi is more popular than sponsored posts for digestive enzymes and high coverage foundation. More popular than soft launching your boyfriend. More popular than making boomers explode with rage when you tell them how much you make on a single post. Tubi, it's more popular than influencers. See you in there. This is Duray. Welcome to Pod Save the People. On this episode, it's me, Brittany Clinton-Sam, as usual with the news. And then I sit down with Chicago's mayor, Mayor Lori Lightfoot, to discuss the complications of managing the third largest city in the country during a pandemic. And my advice for this week is to remember that part of what it means to be an ally, to be an accomplice, is to care about issues before they impact you personally and even if they don't impact you personally. And I say this because a couple weeks ago when the alarm was going off around COVID-19, there were people who hadn't been impacted, whose family hadn't been impacted, whose friends hadn't been impacted, who were like, oh, this is just a hoax on TV. And all of a sudden, this is getting really close to a lot of people's lives. It is touching their schools, their houses of worship, their homes, their friends. And now people are like, wow, this is real. But remember, part of what it means to stand with people is to understand that when it's real for someone, it is real enough to do work about. Let's go. Hey, y'all. It's the news. This is Brittany Packnett Cunningham at Miss Pacchetti on all social media. And this is Sam Tanyangwe at Sam Sway on Twitter. And this is Clint Smith at Clint Smith III. And this is Dre at D-R-E-Y on Twitter. So it's week... I don't know, of quarantine. We've been in here for a little while. A lot of us have already streamed all of the same things. Like we've, a lot of us have all already watched Tiger King. We've already revisited Breaking Bad. (laughs) We've already watched all the same stuff. So what are you all watching? We need to make some recommendations to our listening audience because we don't know exactly how much longer we're going to be in this. And between your Zoom calls and homeschooling your children, you should be able to find some time to breathe and relax a bit because this can be stressful. So what are y'all watching? So I feel like I said it before, but I'm still watching the X-Men cartoons from the beginning. I don't love that the mutants fight the mutants a lot. Like, I wish they were fighting the people trying to destroy the world, but here we go. So that, I also, I've always been in love with um, The Blacklist. Love The Blacklist, and it finally came back. So I am an episode behind, but love The Blacklist. So I've been watching that. Oh, I also, I have an Oculus, like the VR set, and I'm like a fan of VR. So DM me if you also have an Oculus so we can play something together. It feels like the quarantine is just never ending. Sing, DeRay, sing it. (laughs) That actually, I, I watched the Clark Sisters biopic last night on Lifetime, which was incredibly well done, which was very important to me because... I have been a Clark Sisters fan since I was a little girl. They are the queens of gospel music. They are known as the legendary Clark Sisters for so many reasons. Their mother, Dr. Maddie Moss Clark, was a trailblazer in the church because she was a woman leading and creating a distinctive sound that spread all across the country during a time when um, the patriarchy was even heavier than it is today in the church. And the Clark sisters have some of the most incredible voices and one of the most distinctive blends in all of music. So I was looking at this biopic with like one closed eye because I was like, if they don't do the Clark sisters right, I'm going to have to go up to Lifetime and break quarantine to fight somebody. But we didn't have to do that because it was so 
good. All of the actors sang themselves. Kiara Sheard played her mother, Karen. Clark Sheard. The acting was good. The wigs were quality. The music was good. I've been singing the Clark sisters all day. And so I watched that. If you haven't watched that on Lifetime, I would go stream it. What else? I have been watching uh, Making the Cut on Amazon Prime. Tim and Heidi left Project Runway, and now they're over there doing a different fashion show. Little Fires Everywhere, which comes out every Wednesday on Hulu. Have y'all been watching this? It is so good. Jesse is in it. Carrie Washington, uh, Reese Witherspoon, Joshua Jackson. The layers are so complicated there about mother-daughter relationships and sibling relationships. And it is, I will not give you a spoiler, but let's just say after the last episode, I text Jesse and I was like, ooh, wee, <laughs> this is a thing. Um, it is very, very good. So yeah, there's there's some entertaining stuff still happening. Um, and I think though, honestly, me finding less and less stuff to uh, <laughs> to stream is probably a good thing because I need to go ahead and finish editing my book. So, Nicole, I'm going to get that done. So I've been watching a mix of things. Uh, some newer movies. So, like, I saw Bad Boys for Life. I saw, which, like, was fascinating that, you know, they still doing the thing so many years into this. I saw, what else did I see? Uh, recent movies like Parasite, Uncut Gems were good. Some older movies that I just never saw. So like I had never seen Cadillac Records and I just saw it yesterday, which was cool. And yes, Beyonce's in it. And I Beyonce think Parkwood did her thing helped in that. produce it. So yeah, that, that was dope. Um, I learned a lot. It was quality. She played Etta James and she sang her face off. What else? I've been watching some old soccer games. So like I used to play soccer like throughout, uh, like since I was little, through high school, a little bit of college. But then I just like stopped playing it. And I just stopped having time to like watch games uh, after I left my parents' house when it was just on all the time. So I've been catching up on some like classic World Cup games and like super classical games, which have been cool. That's about it so far. I mean, you know, Netflix, every time they post some new stuff on there, I'm trying to see, like, hopefully there'll be something good. It's sort of hit or miss. But, you know, you work with what you got. This is fair. And now the news. What's going on, y'all? This is Clint. And I hope everyone is staying safe uh, in what continues to be a strange and uncertain and unprecedented time. Uh, something I've been thinking a lot about is how this virus is going to impact the continent of Africa. And that's something that we haven't heard discussed a lot, in part because the outbreak isn't as bad there. Uh, but I kind of want to talk a little bit about some of the things that could make it really bad for a place that has been uh, historically uh, and systemically under-resourced. Obviously, as we know, we can never talk about the sort of social, economic, and political conditions of Africa and the countries within it without also interrogating the history of colonialism, the history of imperialism, the history that created the economic and political instability that exist in so many of these countries. With that said, it is important to examine the very real and weak healthcare infrastructure that exists in many of these countries as a result of you know these decades and decades of not having the resources that they need or having those resources taken away. So there are worries about the country's ability to handle an outbreak because of this healthcare crisis that they've experienced for a long time that's going to be exacerbated potentially by this. Consider the Central African Republic, which has a population of almost 5 million, which is about the same as Alabama. The Central African Republic still has only 10 cases, but the virus is spreading in the community, which, as we know, means that those numbers will eventually rise very quickly as they have elsewhere. So Alabama expects to need about 340 ventilators at the peak of the outbreak. The United States has roughly 172,000 ventilators, which isn't nearly enough. 
Sierra Leone, uh, which has about the population of Washington State, has 13 ventilators. The Central African Republic has three ventilators. Liberia, which has a population about the size of Louisiana, only has three. South Sudan only has four. There's a great article about this in The Atlantic by the writer Graham Wood, and he's talking about some of this stuff and, and also goes into ICU beds, saying that the South African countries have many relative to other countries in Africa. They have about 3,000. The United States, for context, has 64,000. But Somalia has 15 ICU beds for the entire country. The largest city in Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo has perhaps two dozen ICU beds to serve a province with a population about the same size as the state of Louisiana. And with endemic malaria, malnutrition, tuberculosis, poverty, and all of these other diseases, it can make COVID-19 especially dangerous as we know that it kind of amplifies the worst health conditions um, that exist in the environment where it's going. The COVID-19 strategy that has been employed in most of the developed world, we know, has been the flatten the curve. We heard it over and over and over again. But in Africa, that strategy doesn't make a lot of sense, healthcare workers are saying, because no amount of home quarantine will flatten the curve enough to let everyone have a turn at one of the three ventilators that exist. So what might save these countries is timing. Being the last continent without widespread outbreaks has given a lot of these countries the opportunity to witness how bad these outbreaks can get and then to plan accordingly. Rwanda, for example, shut down its border when it still only had a handful of cases, and it wouldn't have done so if it hadn't seen Italy and Iran and other, all of these other countries struggling at first. Most of all, Africa will enjoy the advantage of youth. COVID-19 kills mostly the old. Uh, Africans are relatively young with a median age of 18.9. The median age in the United States and China, uh, for context, is 38, which means, in effect, about half of people in Africa, based on our data, who get COVID have a low risk of death, uh, even though this is complicated by the fact that there are all of these pre-existing conditions that we mentioned before. So all of this to say, uh, we don't know what's going to happen. I think it's important to make sure that the continent of Africa and the countries within it still continue to be a part of this conversation and that we are thinking about those folks and making sure that they are not lost and making sure that they are able to get the help that they need to the extent that it is possible. So the other day I was talking to my husband, shout out to Reg, shout out to us being married for six whole months as of tomorrow. We are making it through this quarantine, newly wedded quarantine one day at a time. But we were talking about voting. And DeRay and Sam, actually, I ended up texting you after this conversation with him because what we were talking about was how necessary it was going to be for us to download our applications and go ahead and register for absentee ballots. We do not know if this quarantine will be up, if it will be safe or wise to go back outside, to gather in confined spaces in large groups by the time of November. And most certainly, this global crisis is a reminder of how important democracy is. It does not make the election less important. It makes it all the more important because the people who are or are not looking after us in this very moment. Many of them are up for election in November, if not sooner. So we said we're going to go and fill out our absentee ballots. And then an article popped across my phone about the fact that Donald Trump is refusing to give the cash injection to the United States Postal Service that they are asking for. 
which I find particularly curious. But here's what we know so far. We know um, that because of the outbreak of COVID-19, that the USPS is in dire financial straits. People are sending less mail. The volume of mail is plummeting. People are scared to transfer things um, throughout mail and scared to put people in danger. We also know that over 400 USPS uh, staff members have tested positive for COVID-19 as of a few days ago. Now, mind you, this is out of over 600,000 employees. So the proportion is very small. And I respect and really appreciate that they're taking very clear precautions because they are so essential to keeping so many of us moving and keeping our um, families well and fed and healthy. So it's a very small proportion, but we should never, ever forget that these postal workers, whether they work for USPS, FedEx, or UPS, or some other shipping agency, are risking their lives every single day to keep our lives going. But we know that the USPS in particular is in a situation of dire financial straits. In the last stimulus package, we know that it allowed for the USPS to borrow up to $10 billion from the U.S. Treasury, but it didn't provide emergency funding or debt relief, which is what the Postmaster General is asking for. There are two Democratic lawmakers who oversee the Postal Service, and we should remember that Elijah Cummings in particular was somebody who was fiercely committed to the survival of the USPS, but they essentially essentially have said that they, quote, will not survive the summer without immediate help from Congress and the White House. But what is happening instead is that Trump reportedly is rejecting federal relief packages that would include a bailout for the Postal Service. Now, why did I connect that with voting? You've probably already figured it out. Absentee ballots have to go through the mail. Most, if not all, absentee ballots can be sent for free via USPS. But if USPS is severely understaffed, if they are experiencing a shortage or worse, that could certainly jeopardize our ability to vote. We should be making sure that USPS is functional, irrespective of what's going on, whether or not there is an election. But even more so now, when we think about the power of our vote and we think about the fact that Trump has been using every single lever at his disposal to suppress the vote. We saw it in Wisconsin. I truly hope we don't see it in Ohio later this month, but I think it is highly probable. We certainly saw it in 2016 and 2018. And looking out ahead, even if we were trying to get ahead and plan on voting absentee in November, it looks like Trump and his team have already thought of that too. We're going to have to figure out how we stop being eight steps behind here. Yeah, you know, it's been wild because you can contrast the support for vote by mail across the population. So Democrats, independents and Republicans broadly support vote by mail, want to have that option. Obviously, I recognize that especially now in the context of a pandemic, it's really important that folks can vote at all uh, if they can't leave their homes. And then you contrast that with the rhetoric and the messaging coming out of this White House and it's been sort of disappointing, I guess, is a, is a light word to use. But, you know, they are trying to flip folks against vote by mail through this messaging. I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of Republicans suddenly change their minds and decide vote by mail is not a good idea, despite supporting it for decades. The other thing that's sort of a concern here is 
You know, we have seen how vote by mail, particularly in Republican controlled states, um, they have sought to suppress, repress and restrict who is able to actually exercise that vote by mail. So whether that is requiring sort of excuse absentee ballots, so you have to have what they call a valid excuse and even to cast an absentee ballot in some states. Uh, In other states, like uh, where I'm from in Florida, uh, we've seen a whole lot of people just never get their ballots or get them too late to cast a vote, particularly young people, students studying uh, outside of the state and other places. Um, So, you know, this is a system that can create a lot of access for folks, needs to be in place. The USPS is critical uh, to actually providing the infrastructure for folks to even exercise their vote through absentee ballots. And at the same time, we have to hold Republicans' feet to the fire to not only fund that system, but not to impose the types of restrictions and underhanded tactics um, that try to prevent certain groups, and particularly young people, people of color, from being able to participate in that system if it remains. Now, there are a lot of things I didn't know about the Postal Service and why the Republicans want to privatize it. So this has been a long, long time effort by the right to privatize the Postal Service to essentially turn into a private business so that it can make money, that they can outsource some things. Now, there's a range of benefits that the USPS enjoys and nothing else in America enjoys. And these are the things that really frustrate the right. So the USPS has a monopoly over the delivery of first-class mail and a monopoly over access to mailboxes. So nobody else can deliver it into mailboxes but the USPS. That's one of the ways that their monopoly works. This is a huge advantage, as you can imagine. It also can borrow up to $15 billion from the Treasury at low interest rates. It's exempt from state and local sales, income, and property taxes, from parking tickets, vehicle fees, and other charges. It does pay federal corporate income tax on its earnings from competitive products, but all those taxes actually circulated back to the USPS It's not bound by local zoning laws. It's immune from a host of civil actions and has the power of eminent domain. And it has government regulatory power, which it can use to impede competitors. Now, some people might hear that list and be like, wow, that's not fair. We should privatize it. But remember that the Postal Service is a public good in the same way that a library is a public good or that a park is a public good. So the reason why we allow it these advantages is because the Postal Service is in every community. Everybody who has a house or a home or access to a mailbox can have one. It is equally distributed across the country. So there are neighborhoods where there's not a huge density of people, but they deserve access to communicate with each other. And we just believe that as a fundamental right. And that's why the USPS has been a longstanding institution in America. It's a public good. So we don't ever think about letting a person profit off of it. The USPS, even when it was operating not in the red, which was before the 2008 recession, it was sort of barely making money to be able to cover the bills. And then what we saw is over time, the Republicans continue to try and weaken it because they know that if they privatize it, what will happen is they'll close a lot of post offices that exist in places without a lot of people, and they will try and make a whole lot of money off of it. But it's a public good, and we should always protect our public goods. And most people don't realize that the USPS receives no tax dollars for operating expenses and relies solely on the sale of postage, products, and services to fund its operations. Like, it's not milking money away from your tax dollars. That is just a myth. And remember that it also is the largest retail network in the country. It's bigger than McDonald's, Starbucks, and Walmart combined. 
It is one of the largest civilian fleets in the world with almost 230,000 vehicles. And one of the reasons why they want to privatize it is that it's a wealth of information, that the information that USPS has, if it was privatized and just sold uh, to companies or allowed to be used for profit in a way that it is not right now, there'd be a huge boom to some companies. But again, this is a public good. And we think about what it means that we've created a service that anybody for 55 cents can send a letter to anywhere in the country, regardless of the geographic location. And I just want to add before we move on to the next piece of news, look, postal carriers, people who work at USPS are already doing work that is often more dangerous than other jobs anyway. My aunt was a postal worker for a long time and had to take a lot of measures to protect herself while she was performing that job. It is even more dangerous now. And as we talked about last week, you guessed it, marginalized people are overrepresented in that particular employee field. The Postal Service is almost 20% Black, which overrepresents the U.S. population by several percentage points. So once again, we continue to see people with the worst health disparities and worst health outcomes being at more risk because their jobs are deemed essential. We have to protect USPS, as DeRay and Sam already said, by any means necessary. Don't go anywhere. More Pontiac the People's coming. There are over 75 million monthly Tubi viewers. That's more people than there are in France. Which means Tubi is more popular than cigarettes for breakfast. It's more popular than considering iced coffee a total abomination. More popular than loving political revolutions. More popular than mer and mer somehow being different words. Tubi. It's more popular than being French. See you in there. Pod Save the People is brought to you by Factor. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no prep, no mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from each week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. You can crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Now, let me tell y'all, they sent me the Factor meals, and it is absolutely true. Two minutes, pop it in a microwave, and it literally is restaurant-quality food. So far, my favorites are chicken parmesan. I am a chicken parmesan connoisseur. This stuff is good. It has broccoli and tomatoes, and it is creamy and amazing. Mmm, yum. So easy to throw it in the microwave and have a good meal. I'm saving money. I'm not eating out at restaurants so much. It's healthy. Like I cannot say more about Factor Meals. So if you want to be down with this, head to factormeals.com slash PSTP50 and use code PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code PSTP50 
at factormeals.com slash PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Posse of the People is brought to you by BetterHelp. Now, y'all, the beginning of this year has just been a lot going on, like from work and family and friends and just, you know, the weather's been awful in New York City and Baltimore. There are a lot of stressors happening, big and small, and we keep them bottled up. It can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com people today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot people. So in the past couple of episodes, we've talked about some of the data that is coming in from states across the country showing that Black people in particular are dying at higher rates from coronavirus, are more likely to die if they get coronavirus, are in communities that have higher rates of testing positive for coronavirus, and that like many other issues that we've talked about in the past, this issue in particular, which reflects healthcare disparities and broader issues of structural racism, is disproportionately impacting Black communities. Well, it turns out that the relief package that has been passed and signed into law not only doesn't do enough to address those disproportionate impacts in Black communities, but actually is excluding Black folks disproportionately from the benefits that are provided. Uh, So in particular, the $349 billion small business assistance provisions, also known as the Paycheck Protection Program, which offers loans that are considered forgivable loans, up to $10,000 for small businesses, which are supposed to be spent, the majority of that money is supposed to be spent on payroll and then a small proportion on paying off mortgages and other things. So that program, which has been touted as a major component to the relief bill, is, as we're seeing, being denied to a lot of folks in communities that are disproportionately affected by this crisis. And part of that reflects the landscape of redlining and differential access to credit in Black communities. So, for example, a 2016 study by economists at the Stanford Institute for Economic Policy Research found that only 1% of Black business owners get a bank loan during their first year of business compared with 7% of white business owners. Twice as many white business owners, 30% of the total, use business credit cards during their inaugural year compared with only 15% of black business owners. And black businesses often start off with less capital than white businesses. Now, why does this matter to the Paycheck Protection Program? Well, it turns out that these loans are being administered through some of the largest banks in the country, banks like Bank of America and Capital One. And these banks are making decisions that they are going to be providing these loans to existing customers. So if you already don't have a credit card with that bank, if you already don't have a loan with that bank, then in many cases, you don't qualify for this assistance from the bank. And of course, because Black folks are less likely to already have existing relationships with these institutions, uh, because of redlining, because of discrimination among financial institutions, they are less likely to actually benefit from this program. So wanted to bring this to the conversation because we often talk about uh, who is hurting the most from this crisis. And another layer to this is that the relief, the efforts to actually help folks out are all also contributing to the problem by disproportionately excluding some of the communities that are the most impacted by coronavirus. 
Just to double click on your point, Sam, earlier this week, the IRS finally released the link for people who do not file taxes, people who are either not expected to file taxes or as an individual, they make less than $12,200 or as a married couple, less than $24,400 to put in their information so that they can receive a stimulus check. Thankfully, Jack and the folks at Square have been able to leverage Cash App to provide unbanked people with the ability to get a routing number and an account number through one of their Square cards for free so that you do not have to be signed up with one of these institutions in order to be able to receive your stimulus check and direct deposit it. So being able to direct deposit it obviously means you're getting your money faster, but it also means you don't have to risk your health and well-being by going to a check cashing place that may or may not be open and may or may not be taking the proper health precautions. So to your point, Sam, so many people in our communities are not banked or banked in traditional spaces. So many of the businesses in Black communities are single proprietor LLCs because For many Black folks, Black millennials in particular, a promising route out of poverty, a promising route out of these kind of wage-earning, high-risk jobs that we've been talking about for the last couple of weeks is to be able to actually monetize what we would call your side hustle. So a homemade things that you make or the artwork that you do or your photography skills or hair braiding or, you know, even bigger businesses, right? That people are able to pursue those things while they work a nine to five until the business becomes profitable. But for so many of those people, they're doing that primarily online. Like you said, Sam, not in traditional banking circumstances. And we continue to find that our people are written out over and over again. And I am hesitant to say that they could have figured this out beforehand because I'm very sure that there are lawmakers and senior staff and legislative aides that were telling folks to watch out for these things. What I fully believe is that some people just don't care to watch out for these things, that these inequities are not things that matter to them at the very least, and that these inequities are things that are beneficial to them at the very most. And they're not paying attention because they choose not to. You know, I know I talked about this last time, but I've been following up with the dry cleaner owner who works down the street. And it was interesting because I didn't realize, and Sam, your your news sort of highlights this again. I didn't realize that one of the only ways that people can take advantage of these loans is to have a bank that you have a relationship with. And you think about all the people who either didn't take loans from banks or took money from other places. So In the article that you note, Sam, there's a story of a black man who didn't get a loan from a bank, but he got loans from friends, loans from family, raised money, mortgaged his house, things like that. And he suddenly is not able to take advantage of this process through Bank of America because they said that he had a pre-existing loan relationship somewhere else. And it's like you are reminded in moments like this that the system is designed to help people who know how to navigate the system, that there are a lot of people who would take a small loan if they knew that that would be the only way that they could get big benefits later. But like, who was supposed to know that? And here's the thing is that the government doesn't have to be this complicated. You think about some other countries that have just given out money quickly. They realize that like nobody benefits when the economy falls flat. When this many people are unemployed, when this many small businesses simply won't recover, no matter how much we do in the next month or so, that the whole economy suffers. But again, this is why it matters that we talk about what's happening on the right, that it really is a diabolical plan to just watch a set of people fail because a whole nother set of people is getting rich off this. There are banks getting bailed out in this. There are huge industries making a ton of money in a crisis 
while everybody on Main Street is being screwed over. But it doesn't, it truly doesn't have to be like this. I know uh, Representative Waters, Maxine Waters, said it on the podcast a couple weeks ago. But call your representative, call your city council person, call your mayor, light them up. They should not have a moment where that phone is not buzzing, where that email is not popping. Make people make this system work because you'd be surprised. And I used to work in the school system and people don't really reach out to you unless something really, 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 really wild happens. But there's a lot of stuff that people should have been beating our doors down about and people don't. So beat the doors down, y'all, that we have to make the government work for us. My news is about remembering that in moments like this, that the carceral state does not shrink, it expands. That when we think about the push to punish, that in moments like this, it just gets hidden a little bit because we're so focused on the biggest story, which is the pandemic. It gets pushed to the side a little bit, but it doesn't go away. And part of our work is to remember and bring it up because when the pandemic ends, these problems will still be present and we got to work on them. So this is about the Virginia Board of Corrections, which last Friday approved a plan by the Chesapeake Sheriff to reopen a vacant Chesapeake jail annex to house inmates who test positive for COVID-19. Now, let's think about that, that instead of letting people out and putting them in treatment, Instead of decarcerating, because Lord knows all them people shouldn't be in jail in the first place, that there are a whole set of people that we could just agree on can be out. Then there's another set of people that we might not agree on at the beginning, but we should have more conversations on and we can get them out too. That if there's any moment where we should be like, it doesn't make sense to lock people in cages. This is the moment to question that. This is the moment to remind everybody that there's no way to socially distance inside of jail. And that what you see happening in Virginia is an attempt to expand the carceral state, not to shrink it in this moment. That opening up more annexes, putting people in different buildings that we've closed is not a response to this. The only response that makes sense is to let people out. And we monitor these things and we watch these things because again, if we don't pay attention now, we won't realize it till five months after the pandemic ends. And we're like, oh, how did that annex get open? Oh, how did this new jail pop up? Where'd that come from? And we can't let that happen. So speaking of things that we monitor and watch closely, during the time of this recording on Sunday evening, the New York Times broke a story about what they are calling the Red Dawn emails. There are a number of medical experts and infectious disease doctors who are senior leaders in the federal government and academic institutions around the nation who were on an email chain that began on January the 28th. Not yesterday, not two weeks ago, not for the three or four weeks that we've been in quarantine. January 28th, talking about the ineffectiveness of our administration and various government entities when it comes to COVID-19. So here are some of the things that the New York Times has uncovered. One, that on January 28th, 2020, a Veterans Affairs official worried that the World Health Organization and the U.S. CDC were being too slow in addressing the spread of the virus. That on January the 28th, a former Bush and Obama advisor compared the outbreak to major disasters in world history. On February the 17th, the experts worried that it would be too hard to convince society to order restrictions like school and business closures because the administration had not been taking it seriously. On February the 17th as well, they saw the Diamond Princess Cruise Line example as an early case study of how quickly the virus should spread and warned people to pay attention to it. These same experts on February the 23rd said that February, not March, not April, February was the tipping point for them. 
later on, on March the 11th, a former high-ranking Trump official actually weighed in to criticize the Trump administration. He specified the fact that on March 11th, Mr. Trump gave a speech to the country about limits on flights to Europe and the United States, but mentioned nothing about curbing gatherings in cities where the virus had spread and said that it was too little, too late. Participants later on March the 13th were angry that the CDC didn't push earlier for school closures. And these are just eight of the things that we are discovering from this single email chain. There are thousands more emails. There are lots more phone calls. There are plenty of text messages, all from people who knew better, but did not do better. At the very least, it is gross negligence to not have had a plan for all of the American people, to not have had a plan for incarcerated people, to not have had a plan for the most marginalized among us. At the most, this is intentional malfeasance. Either way, it's completely criminal against the American people. So, I mean, this is just wow that they knew in advance. Everybody knew who had access to the people, to the infrastructure to do something about it. They refused to act at the highest levels. That is true in the White House. That is true in Chesapeake, Virginia, where this sheriff, you know, Sheriff O'Sullivan, is instead of taking steps in advance to make sure that there were fewer people being incarcerated so that they could actually do what they said they were trying to do. So the head of the Virginia Sheriff's Association uh, actually praised this decision by Sheriff O'Sullivan to open up this new part of the jail, saying that this would free up space for the local jails for quarantine and give, quote unquote, breathing space for local jails and for other inmates. That's what he says. And if they actually were interested in doing that, first of all, they would have reduced the number of folks who were incarcerated in the first place. Instead of doing that, what we've seen when you look at the data on January 1st, there were 986 people incarcerated in the Chesapeake City Jail. One week ago, which is the latest data we have on April 8th, there were 1,046 people incarcerated. So they actually increased incarceration by about 10% over that time period instead of reducing incarceration and actually achieving the goal that they are saying they're trying to achieve, which is to create more space in the jails to prevent the spread of coronavirus and to keep people safe. That is not what they chose to do. Instead, what they chose to do was to open up another wing of the jail to incarcerate people in a different setting to actually create space for more people to be incarcerated. That is what they're doing, right? And so this is just at every level, right? Local, state, and federal, we are seeing policymakers, we are seeing elected officials who have access to the information to take the right action to protect people and keep people safe. Instead, double down on racism, to double down on mass incarceration, to double down on the exact things that have created uh, a vulnerability to this virus throughout the United States. And in many cases, things that are responsible for this being uh, the largest outbreak anywhere in the world happening right here in the United States. That's the news. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Stay tuned, there's more to come. Guys, it's been a rough year. It's going to get rougher, and you deserve a little treat for not going insane yet. You could head to the local tiki bar and tell the bartender, do your worst. But we have a better idea for you, which is pick out something from the Crooked store. The store is stocked with tons of new merch. It's perfect for the spring. And classics like the Friend of the Pod tees that you'll be wearing long after the next administration or the next fascist dictatorship, depending on how things go. Pick up a new tee for the warm weather ahead, a mug that'll remind you to stay involved this election year, or a hat celebrating your favorite pod. Go to crooked.com slash store to shop.
All right, people, we all know the stakes of the 2024 election are high, whether it's keeping the Senate, taking back the House, or stopping Republicans at the state level. If you're ready to make a real difference, sign up for Vote Save America's 2024 volunteer program. And just to make it interesting, we're pitting you against each other. Vote Save America will sort you onto a team east or west, and you'll compete with a community of other volunteers to maximize your impact on the ground with opportunities tailored to you and the causes you care about. The team with the highest volunteering staff could secure the biggest prize of all, the continuation of American democracy. Head to votesaveamerica.com slash 2024 now and get ready to organize or else. This message has been paid for by Vote Save America. You can learn more at votesaveamerica.com. And this ad has not been authorized by any candidate or candidate's committee. And now my conversation with Lori Lightfoot. She is the first black woman to be elected mayor of a major city in the United States. She's been on the job for less than a year and she is already battle tested, having to deal with COVID-19 in the first set of months as mayor. And it's good that I got to talk to her. I learned a lot in this conversation and we talked about a lot. Let's go. Mayor Lightfoot, thanks so much for joining us today on Pod Save the People. My pleasure. Now, one of the things I wanted to know as we start is there's so much misinformation going around about coronavirus and we have to believe that there are local leaders that seem to have better information than is coming out of the federal government right now. How do you get your information? What does that process even look like for the mayor of one of the biggest cities in the country to get briefed about this? Well, um, you start with making sure that you have a, a very robust public health infrastructure and having great public health leaders at the top. We have data scientists, epidemiologists, and the top leadership of our public health department are all people who have great experience, not just in public health, but in uh, fighting things like Ebola, um, SARS, MERS, H1N1. So we've got very deep, entrenched leadership that also understands that you, you don't prepare for a pandemic when it starts. You prepare all year round. And you prepare by making sure that you've got standard operating procedures very well-tuned, uh, that you um, practice uh, what a response uh, would look like, and that you are consciously building a stockpile all year round. Um, and then, um, you know, in the middle of the, the fight, you make sure that you really understand what data points you need to be following that are going to be indicative of what the ramp up is and what the release points are as well. I get that information synthesized down, of course. On a daily basis, I've spent a significant amount of personal time really understanding this. There's no uh, pandemic mayor's book for dummies out there. So you've got to really invest the time, which is what I've done. You've had uh, quite a beginning of your uh, mayoral term in Chicago. It's been no shortage of things to deal with. Uh, How has it been so far? Well, it's been a ride. Uh, We're not quite a, a year in. I was sworn in. Uh, May 20th of last year, and we've done, we've gone through a lot of different things. We walked into almost a billion dollar budget deficit that, that we uh, luckily were able to close without a significant property tax increase or substantial layoffs or retrenchment in, in city services. Um, and then we had a two week teacher strike over the fall, which was all consuming. Now we're in the middle of a pandemic. It's been eventful. And it seems like it's not letting up. It looks like this. If this is any uh, indication of your four years, you got a you got a, <laughs> a lot to do. 
What is your relationship like with Governor Pritzker? How do you, you know, leading such a large city, but in a, in the context of a state, how do you share information? Do y'all talk every day to plan? Like, what does that even look like? In the middle of this pandemic, obviously, uh, we're talking much more frequently than we um, otherwise would. I mean, we we didn't know each other before either of us became um, elected, so we're building relationship as we go on. But in the middle of this, as you might imagine, there's a lot of communications at various levels between the two of us personally, our kind of senior team, um, but also the public health officials have to be in regular cadence of conversations, and they are. And have you had any conversation with the president? I have not had any conversation with uh, the president. I spoke with uh, Vice President Pence um, recently, and that was a very cordial conversation. And as you might imagine, I advocated for the things that we all need, which is more PPE, more events. And I also um, suggested, because I had written him a letter to this effect, that he really needed to convene a bipartisan, geographically diverse group of of mayors um, to be at the table with the task force, if not officially on the task force, but having the opportunity to inform the work of the task force from the front lines. Everything that happens, every policy that they announce, they're the burden and the brunt of that. We are the ones that have to implement it. And there have been a lot of misses that have come out of Washington, D.C. that could have very easily been avoided had they been in regular contact with a diverse group of of mayors who could have said, all right, well, let's think about how this is actually going to be played out in towns and cities across the country. Is it projected that you'll run out of uh, hospital beds or anything like that in Chicago, or are you you currently okay? I think we're currently okay. We were very concerned, and just even a few weeks back, because of the very dire predictions. The, The thing that I've learned is, you know, you implement a policy. So we implemented, you know, shutting down large crowds. And then we kind of incrementally did this until we, um, the governor imposed a stay-at-home order uh, a few weeks back. There's always a lag. So you do it on day one, and it may be one, two weeks or longer before you actually see the effects of that. So when we, uh, the governor initially put in place a stay-at-home uh, order, we were on a trajectory that was really quite sobering and frightening. And had we not done something fairly dramatic, we would have seen a level of hospitalizations that would have broken our system. So we immediately started taking steps to mitigate that. Are there any plans to do something about public transportation? It seems like that is a vector that uh, could be a high transport area for COVID, but it's also vitally important to people getting to work or getting around the city, especially a city like Chicago. What do you do about public transportation in a in a pandemic moment? Well, I think you have to do a number of things um, simultaneously. First, you do have to recognize who's using your public transportation, uh, what the trips are, where people are originating, where they're dropping off. And luckily, we have that kind of data here in Chicago. Then knowing that and knowing, as you mentioned, that so many people are dependent upon public transportation, then you've got to start to make some key decisions about, you know, do you stay at the same level of service? Or if not, what do you do? The other thing that I think is important is you got to look at where your public transportation reaches and who's riding it. So we announced recently that in Chicago, Black folks are being more disproportionately hit, both in the number of cases, but also the number of deaths. And the number of deaths is seven times, that's right, seven times 
uh, the amount of any other demographic. So we started digging in what's going on there. Now, of course, we know a lot of it as a result of the underlying medical conditions that plague way too many folks in the black community. Those didn't just originate overnight, but the pandemic, the virus, really attacks those underlying conditions with a vengeance. So then we have to look at, all right, let's think about shelter in place. Is that possible in certain sectors of our community? And as you well know, in many African-American homes, there's an intergenerational living. There may be the grandma down to the infant and everything else in between. And space is a real issue. When you say, you know, social distancing within your home, do you have the luxury of having a lot of additional space where you can spread out? You know, in my home, we're fortunate. We've got, you know, three floors and a basement and outside. So we have the ability to separate ourselves if we need to do that. But that's not the reality of a lot of black and brown Chicago. But back to public transportation, what we knew is critical people, essential workers needed to work. They needed to get from the neighborhoods down to their jobs. And so cutting off public transportation services didn't make any sense because those folks don't have cars, many of them, and they really rely heavily on public transportation. So what we've done from day one is made sure that we've got signage and messaging Public transportation is cleaned. The cars, the buses, the platforms, the stations, we're going over and beyond what we would normally do to make sure that those spaces are clean. The other thing that we've done, because we have seen some issues with bus drivers, you know, they're used to being at bus barns and having a break room where it's a congregate setting. Well, when we started to see some infection rates there, we sent our, our public health department to take a look and figure out what was going on. So we've literally done things like taking tables and chairs out of uh, break rooms so that people aren't congregating in them. They can still go in and they can use them, but we're doing the opposite of what we would ordinarily do. We're not making it a comfortable place for people to gather. We're doing a ton of, of education amongst that workforce. We've had a lot of uh, interaction with the amalgamated uh, transit union locals that service the bus and the rail. So there's a lot of moving pieces around public transportation. And I will say that the head of our public transportation system is on a regular call with large public transit systems leaders across the country, and they're learning from each other and talking about best practices. So the disparities are intense. And like you said, I read it too, the seven times uh, more impact of Black people. Is there anything that we can structurally do to make sure that Black people, when they exhibit symptoms, that they get access to primary care physicians, you know, like I know a lot of people in poverty don't have quick access to a primary care physician or easy access to a doctor. Is there anything that we can do or you can do as a government to mitigate that damage? Yeah, we started that. Um, When we knew that the numbers were as dire as they were, I determined that we couldn't just drop this bomb on people without having some concrete steps that we could take to reach them and to give them some tools to help themselves. So uh, we stood up uh, on Monday when we made the announcement, we stood up a rapid response racial equity team. And what that means is we took a model of a kind of multidisciplinary group of folks who had been working on life expectancy disparities um, on the west side of Chicago. They've got a very effective model. They've got community members that are at the table, community navigators who reach out and really kind of demystify the healthcare issues for Black folks and connect them up with services. So we've taken that model, we've added 
some more public health components to it. And we've launched it in areas across the city. We're starting with those areas where we're seeing the highest death rates. And then we're looking also to expand into areas where we see the highest rates of infection. And literally, we're activating the faith community, block clubs. We've got a big network of street intervention workers here in Chicago. Now, normally these folks are trained to stop retaliatory gun violence, but we're tapping into that network. We're literally going door to door now, obviously with the appropriate gloves and masks, but we're handing out what we would normally think of as palm cards, but we're doing door hangers to make sure that we are reaching people that may not be getting their news um, from TV, radio, social media. So we're thinking about how do we meet people where they are, connect them up with healthcare providers as necessary, but also give them tools on, hey, do it at least a once a day temperature check. Here's the symptoms that you need to be worried about. Here's what social distancing can look like in your household. So helping build capacity in neighborhoods block by block to really address this immediate crisis, this immediate pandemic, but also looking at building an infrastructure that we can then leverage later when we go back into these same communities to talk about how we get to a healthier lifestyle for everyone. And I saw, too, that the CTA implemented um, rear door boarding in an effort to promote social distancing. Yes, just this week, um, we implemented rear door boarding, but still we are making sure that people don't congregate in mass at uh, bus stops. We've added the kind of double um, extension buses to crowded routes. We put limits on the number of people that can be on a single bus or one of these extension buses so that we ensure that within the bus itself, there's social distancing. Now, what do we do about prisons and jails? Is that, as you know, Cook County, uh, one of the biggest single site jails in the country. Uh, what do we do about making sure that COVID doesn't spread in jails, that jail sentences don't become death sentences for people? What's the what there? Well, it's a complicated situation in a setting like a jail that is by definition and by design a congregate setting. And Cook County Jail is um, controlled by the county um, and the uh, duly elected sheriff, but we have been trying to partner with them for some time now, primarily through our Department of Public Health, to provide technical assistance to them and and make sure that um, the systems that they've set up for screening detainees once they come into the jail system while they're there and before they get out are using a public health lens. You know, one of the things I know that the sheriff has been doing is looking at ways in which they can decompress the um, dorm-like settings that a lot of the detainees live in. And so they've looked at spaces within their campus footprint, some jails that have been actually decommissioned to reopen them so that they can um, have additional spacing for inmates. Also making sure that, you know, as they get a cluster uh, or a report, I should say, of an infection, having a real rigorous protocol around how you notify people that came into contact. What do you do around cleaning? What do you do to make sure that you're quarantining and isolating people? So really having a very clear protocol for how to respond every time there's any kind of infection. And then what we all need is more testing. The wider spread testing that we get, that has to happen. The other thing that has also happened is there's been an intentional 
action on the part of uh, the public defender, the state's attorney, and the criminal courts uh, to look at people who they can release on uh, uh, pretrial release. So, you know, our view is, and my personal view is, nobody should be locked up if they're not a danger to the community or a flight risk. And clearly nobody should be locked up just because they can't afford to pay bail. So those are kind of core first principles that have to be at play in thinking about a jail setting. Then you've got to have an individualized evaluation of the normal factors that you would use in making a detention decision. But what we've also urged is make sure that there's a public health lens, meaning we want to make sure that anybody who's released from detention is released into a safety net of support. We spent a lot of time in the city building up an infrastructure for vulnerable populations, and we want to make sure that that infrastructure is ready and available for anybody who's coming out of the county jail. And as you know, there are jails in California, New York, Ohio, Texas, and in almost a dozen states that have released people. And uh, the last numbers I saw, it looked like Cook County, there were over 300 people, a combination of people incarcerated and staff who had tested positive. So uh, it does seem like this could be a challenge. Who has the power to do it? Is it the sheriff alone? Is it the county executive? Is it the governor? It's the court. Um, and everybody who's in the jail has already gone through um, a initial bail hearing. And so they're in the jail because there's been a determination on the part of the court that detention is appropriate. You know, obviously we have a vast electronic monitoring system in, in this county, but the, the motion has to come from individual lawyers. Um, in this case, the Cook County a public defender filed a, a motion to, for, in, in essence, mass release. That really can't happen um, under our judicial system, it's really got to be individualized case-by-case case determination. And they started that process a couple weeks back, um, and I think it's an ongoing work in progress. But there shouldn't be, as I said before, anybody locked up who's not a flight risk or danger to the community. I saw some data suggesting that there were people who were locked up only because they didn't have a place to go. So we've got resources now built up in the city of Chicago, if they are resident here, where we can place them into transitional housing. So that shouldn't be a category of people who are locked up in Cook County Jail. Got it. Last couple of questions. I wanted to know, I saw too that the city put a citywide curfew on uh, liquor stores around 9 p.m. each evening. Can you explain what the rationale was behind that? Well, it, it goes back to what, what I was saying before. What we were seeing across the city is the vast majority of people were complying with the stay-at-home order. But we saw pockets of problems. And one of the areas where we saw in, again, particularly in black and brown communities, but it was an issue really all over the city, is that in areas that didn't have a lot of resources, all the recreations are closed down. So the lakefront's closed down, the gyms are closed down, the parks are closed down. People were congregating around liquor stores. And that became a problem. And we were having to spend a lot of police resources pushing people out of um, liquor stores uh, across the city. And this is a perpetual problem in certain neighborhoods, even in the best of times. But it was becoming a significant risk in the course of this pandemic. So we took the steps of shutting all liquor stores, um, liquor sales, I should say, at 9 p.m., we're going to constantly be monitoring that. And if we need to make any adjustments, meaning move up 
the um, time for cessation of sales, we're not going to hesitate to do that. One of the things I was curious about is that McCormick Place is one of the largest convention centers in North America, if not the largest, as you know, and it looks like it's being turned into a medical facility. So, yeah, that's co- that's correct. We, in fact, I just uh, did another walkthrough yesterday, and I have a screen uh, monitor in my, my office where I'm monitoring the, the progress through uh, remote feed, but we will be ready to accept patients this coming week. Do you think you'll need it or is it like a, is it a backup space? I think we'll need it. The question is how many of the potentially, you know, 3,000 beds will we need, but we're definitely going to need it. And think of this as, you know, it's an alternate care facility, uh, meaning we're a release valve, if you will, uh, for the hospitals. So the patients with the most acute needs, meaning the, the patients that are sickest, they will remain in hospitals. But for those who don't need the kind of you know, 24-hour, round-the-clock, really intensive care um, that a hospital can provide. We will have a space for them. Quarantine and isolation will also be available. So we expect to start receiving patients sometime this week. Now, there are a lot of people who are listening who live in Chicago and are like, okay, we get it, May Life Foot, we're going to stay at home, but they want to do something. They want to help out. They want to volunteer. Or what, what are you saying to people who are asking you, like, what can I do? Well, I think the first thing that people have to do is make sure that they're taking care of themselves. And if they're a non-essential worker, they really do need to stay home. We want people to be smart about uh, what they're doing at home. You need to wash your hands frequently. You need to use... Um, hand sanitation products. You need to cover your mouth when you cough, sneeze, or yawn. Those basic things are really important. If people want to volunteer, there's plenty of opportunities. We have a lot of social service work that we are doing across the city in partnership with community-based organizations. That's all I'll talk about food because that's uh, an ongoing need. Uh, We're working with the Greater Chicago Food Depository, uh, the Salvation Army, the United Way, to make sure that we are meeting people's needs. One of the things I learned uh, through the course of this work is people that are on SNAP, well, you know, I'm old enough to remember it being called food stamps, but you can't use your SNAP benefits online to order groceries. So here we are, we're telling folks, hey, you got a shelter in place, stay at home. If you're elderly, if you've got an underlying um, condition, don't come out unless you absolutely need to. And one way that we could help ease that pain is by allowing SNAP recipients to be able to order food online. But the federal rules bar that from happening. So that is one of the things that we are uh, putting front and center on our agenda with our federal partners. But if you want to volunteer, just go to chicago.gov forward slash coronavirus on our website chicago.gov forward slash coronavirus. There's a significant amount of information about everything that's happening in the city uh, around coronavirus, from public health data to opportunities to volunteer, resources that people might need. And the other resource that I will say that I think has been become really invaluable is every day at 11 a.m., Monday through Sunday, our public health commissioner holds a session on Facebook and um, Twitter called The Doctor Is In. That's 11 o'clock Central every day. And there's always a, a theme uh, for transmitting information, uh, but also she answers viewers' questions. 
we've seen data across the country about a spike in child abuse, domestic abuse, and also this question of what happens to kids who are in foster care who age out in the middle of a pandemic, that how do they get access to services in a moment like this? Have you seen those issues be an issue in Chicago? Well, um, around foster kids, I mean, there's always a need to make sure that we're being diligent uh, to protect them and support them. Um, what I've seen is the, the folks that are in this space have stepped up um, even more to make sure that our young people are connected up with services and they don't fall through the cracks. And I think that work will continue. And we're there supporting that work either um, through our delegate agencies, which are the community-based organizations that help deliver services on behalf of the city of Chicago, but also we're doing that in partnership with those independent uh, entities that are uh, that are really looking out uh, for that population. You know, families are uh, uh, in close quarters in ways that they hadn't been before. So we're monitoring that. I can't say that we've seen an uptick yet in any of those two indicators, but we're certainly um, looking out for it. Uh, we have stepped up a lot of helplines uh, around mental health and uh, domestic violence, making sure that we're advertising um, how you can get access to those services, making sure that we've got those helplines fully staffed 24-7 because we're concerned about the potential for an uptick in domestic violence and sexual assault and abuse. How are you taking care of yourself? you got a lot going on. I can only imagine you have jam-packed days. Uh, how are you taking care of yourself? Well, um, I do uh, a number of things. Um, I make sure that I have some headspace um, every day. So the time for me to just kind of decompress and to, and to think and de-stress. I'd love to say that I'm exercising more, but that would be uh, a lie because uh, I'm not a runner. So getting into a, a regular cadence with exercises is tough pandemic or not for me, but I'm trying to walk it more than I normally would because otherwise I could lead a very sedentary life on calls and in meetings. And particularly now, where uh, a lot of it's happening over the phone or on some kind of virtual system. I won't give a plug for one versus another. And then, you know, I, we, as a family, we're, we're spending a lot of time together. And so trying to use the time in a way that puts the worries of the world to the side for at least a moment. So the other night, my wife and I introduced our daughter to Ferris Bueller's uh, Day Off. I hadn't watched that movie in a long time. And it was the first time uh, our 12-year-old had seen it, so that was fun. And kind of seeing that movie again through her 12-year-old eyes. There are a couple of places where I'm like, cover your eyes. Don't <laughs> listen to that. But that was fun. We like board games as a family. So we there's a couple of dominoes games that we play. We're very competitive. So uh, we have fun doing that. And is there a piece of advice that you've gotten over the years that stuck with you? Well, yeah. Um, there's lots of pieces of advice. What I've been trying to do is just make sure that I, I, and this is my personality anyway, I try not to get too high and I try not to get too low. Every day is like a, a mini roller coaster ride. There are some exciting things that happen that give you hope. There are some things that happen that give you a little bit of despair. But I try to even that out in, in how I take that in. It's important that I'm steady. It's important for me. Um, it's important for my team, it's important for the city uh, for them to see a leader who is calm in the face of, you know, a very difficult set of circumstances. That's who I am by nature. I'm not a person who falls apart in the face of a challenge. 
I like a challenge. This is definitely that. This is like having a tiger by the tail. But I'm learning a lot about myself, about leadership, about how to message in a crisis. And the strengths of our city are really shining through. But the areas where we knew we had vulnerabilities, those are very apparent as well. So I'm also kind of thinking about the long game, which is how do we make sure that we recover from this and build a foundation to be even stronger? Cool. Well, thanks for making time to talk to us today on Pots of the People. We look forward to having you back, and hopefully it'll be on the tail end of this. You know, I'm optimistic, and uh, I see that maybe it just be a pinprick right now, but I see the, the light at the end of the tunnel, and uh, that's a great thing. Well, that's it. Thanks so much for tuning in to Pots of the People this week. Tell your friends to check it out. Make sure to rate it wherever you get your podcasts, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else, and we'll see you next week.